All right. So thank, thank you. Thank you, everyone, for coming. And then especially Professor Michael Hudson, thank you so much for being here. It's a, it's a real honor to have you here. Your work has been so influential in uh, providing a foundation for the kind of argument that David Graeber makes in debt. He owes you quite a debt. Uh, <laughs> your work, uh, Super Imperialism, figures prominently in the chapter that, the final chapter of the book, the one that, that we're um, looking at this week. And so it's just so wonderful having you here. Um, you know, one of the things uh, that has been so great about your work is that you're an economist who is able to speak from the position of the economics profession. And so you've spent, um, Though your career has focused on radical political economy, you've worked from within the the institutions of the the uh, the apparatus of super imperialism, and so you're able to to uh, to know the economy better than the so-called wizards of the economy. And your own reading of Federal Reserve data is able to show the hypocrisy of the Fed's own own policies using their own language. And so the work that that um, that you've done in exposing how super imperialism and how the financialization of debt has taken over industry is really monumental in in laying the, the groundwork for the final chapter of, of debt. And, you know, your, your work, many of, uh, of us in this group, we, we know your work and we know of the trilogy that, that you're working on with your most recent book, The Collapse of, of Antiquity, um, coming out. And of course, that being volume two, your first being, um, and forgive them their, their debt. I want to give a little background, just if I may, if you indulge me, if you may indulge me for a moment. I, I want to kind of go back to some of your early work because you wrote back in, I, I, I want to say March or August 1972. You wrote, um, a, some articles, well, you wrote Super Imperialism, what became Super Imperialism, only months after uh, Richard Nixon went off the gold standard. And that work that you produced is still incredibly relevant today because you were able to really predict the kind of financialization of the manufacturing and industrial world that we see going on. And you were right there to witness the, the kinds of, of, I'll use the term innovations in a more Schumpeterian kind of way. You were able to notice the innovations as they were happening and were able to predict these long-term economic trends that, of course, now in, through your institute, that you're being able to, to uh, develop a, a strong degree of prescience in knowing where these trends are playing themselves out. So you you got your start um, back in in uh, in the 1960s studying balance of payments, and um, and then went on in 1968 to get a PhD in economics. I believe you studied with 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 uh, Robert Heilbronner, the the 
Absolutely not. Oh, I never studied not? without. I, it's not possible to study with Bob Heilbronner because he has nothing to teach. Oh, okay. Um, okay. I thought that maybe you had had um, had worked with him as a way to try to counteract some of his work because by the 1970s his work had had gone a, a you know a different direction from yours. So that that's a nice correction. It Thank never you. was. He never wanted me at the new school, and he uh, uh, really wanted me to leave. Uh, he was a Stalinist. And uh, he ran the department in a Stalinist way, uh, and I had nothing uh, at all to do with him. Uh, he hated the fact that I worked with the Catholic Church uh, on uh, uh, land reform. Uh, he said there were too many poor people in the world, and uh, he hated the fact that I criticized the World Bank's uh, move to uh, cut back uh, population uh, uh, control, uh, to uh, the population levels. Uh, everything... Uh, we, uh, on almost everything, we disagreed. It was uh, uh, professors at the new school who uh, wanted to hear what I had to say about copper futures, uh, copper pricing in the metals market uh, that they could use for consulting they were doing with the World Bank uh, that led them uh, to hire me and uh, for international trade. Uh, and I know that you're trying to uh, compliment me by saying I'm an economist, but I haven't, called, I haven't spoken to economists for the last 50 years. Uh, already in 1972, uh, I, I remember I talked to, uh, uh, I, I call, decided to call myself uh, a futurist, uh, that that meant anything you wanted to mean. But whatever it is, I'm not an economist uh, who says you have to get rich by making other people poor and get rich off them. Uh, basically, that's uh, why they give uh, Nobel Prizes for it. So I realized that uh, I couldn't fit anything that I was interested in into the new school curriculum, where I was teaching from 1969 to 1972, uh, when Hal Brunner said, you know, I, I wasn't professional. And then I realized he's absolutely right. I'm not a professional economist. I'm a futurist, or I'm a historian, uh, or, uh, you know, a, a failed uh, orchestra conductor, uh, but not an economist. Uh, so just to set the record straight on that. As a matter of fact, uh, I've been asked by some uh, presidential candidates here uh, to put together an, uh, a group of uh, economists and advisors. And I spoke to uh, my friends in other countries, uh, and uh, we couldn't think of any American economists even to put on the group. Uh, so, you know, that's that's a real problem. I think we need a, a name for a new discipline. I don't know what to call it. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, David was uh, an anthropologist, and I was part officially for 25 years of Harvard's anthropology department uh, doing my uh, 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 the five colloquium I, colloquia I did on uh, uh, ancient uh, economics and debt cancellation. And uh, you could say I'm an anthropologist, but uh, then I remembered the joke in the early 1960s uh, when people would say uh, they'd be suspicious of somebody as a government agent. And the joke was, is he FBI or is he an anthropologist, meaning CAA? Ah. So I, I, I didn't want to use that. Uh, we, we just need another term, and I have maybe you guys can think of one. Yeah, I mean, yeah, housekeeper is one we like. <laughs> we like the term housekeeper for the Museum of Care. Uh, you know, th this is such a, a great point because the, the reason why I, I was wanting to mention your your academic career, the start of your academic career, I was going to pivot to mention how from 
though you have ec- you have economist credentials, you've worked yeah. from outside of the mainstream. And the the sort of point that I was going to get to is that what you and I think what why David Graeber was drawn to your work was not only its brilliance, but the kind of brilliance that it has often has to come from outside of the mainstream because the people who are in the mainstream are unable to see just how complicit they are in the problems that that they're supposed to be solving but are in fact creating by just by you know through means of of capital accumulation so well, actually the the way that we first got in touch was uh he uh, emailed me and wanted to talk about Carl Polanyi and what I thought about uh, Polanyi uh, and I think uh, we both have gone way beyond what Polanyi said, but Polanyi certainly made a good point in uh, uh, being against the commodification of money, commodification of land, and commodification of labor, and saying they're not commodities. So, uh, uh, I mean, that really is how we got together. And uh, we uh, he we didn't talk too much about what I was actually writing on debt cancellation. And when his book came out, uh, uh, people began to say, you know, I should really be worried. Somebody's stolen all of my ideas. Uh, they, 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 here's somebody, they beat me to the, to the punch. And, uh, actually, uh, he and I had talked about this and, uh, he, I knew he was writing the popular book and I didn't think anyone would pay attention to the idea of debt cancellation, the role of debt, uh, until, uh, you'd, I'd got, absolute agreement with the Assyriological profession and the uh, Egyptologists and the uh, uh, the uh, Assyriologists that uh, the debt cancellation really worked. And uh, uh, Dave uh, cut right through all of this and he went right to the public and uh, he's absolutely right. And it was David that created the uh, really the public uh, reception for what I'm doing. And it was uh, the greatest catalyst there possibly could have been, including he got me to his uh, literary agent, uh, and we had the same publisher in Germany, and very nice uh, uh, advances for uh, uh, German translations of our books, and uh, uh, it was uh, uh, very fortuitous. Uh, it, it, it really was a dovetailing of uh, two different approaches. Uh, he was really uh, a man of the people, and when we'd have lunch at... Uh, uh, the, the uh, university place in uh, New York, uh, I'd walk back towards the subway and he'd, there'd be usually a crowd of, uh, uh, his, uh, anti, the, uh, uh, the, uh, one percent, we're the one, one, uh, 99% supporters and he would literally melt into the crowd, just totally melt immediately, uh, into it. And he just had a wonderful, uh, ability to, uh, talk to people that uh, people with a left-wing background like I have are totally unable to talk to uh, to any people except uh, members of our own cult usually. So uh, uh, he, he was just uh, great uh, as an organizer uh, for all of that. And it was, yeah, but it was, well, our, our approaches dovetailed. That, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, the, the, the super imperialism, the first edition came out, you know, I think in, in August or September 1972, right? In, in, in October. October. Yeah. Um, could, could you tell us a bit about how you, you, so when the book came out, I went back and read 
read reviews of it because it's such a pathbreaking work that, you know, it wasn't until decades later that it really got the attention that it deserved. And it really was prescient in making this argument that at the time, few economists were, were, were making. And so the, the work itself was, you know, I, my sense is that it was, that it was so ahead of its time that it was misunderstood. Is, is that accurate? No. Uh, already in around 1964, 65, uh, I think I mentioned it, uh, uh, Chase Manhattan and, uh, and my friends on Wall Street, every uh, Friday, we would uh, wait until uh, two or three o'clock and the Federal Reserve would publish its uh, figures on the gold cover for the dollar. And we were projecting it and we could all see at what point is the dollar going to be uh, uh, forced off gold? And I wrote a, uh, an article for the West Coast paper Ramparts uh, on the sieve of gold uh, saying that, uh, you know, uh, we're going to have to go off gold. It was obvious that the Vietnam War uh, was going to push everybody uh, off, uh, uh, would push the dollar off gold. So I think everybody sort of knew it, but uh, they... Uh, uh, it wasn't talked about in polite company. Fortunately, I, I never made it into polite company because I didn't have a sense of what clothes to wear and, you know, all the identifying things that you need to, uh, uh, to join them. Uh, so, but, uh, my, my group of, uh, fellow, uh, uh, economists with a, uh, Marxist background, uh, and you almost needed a Marxist background to have a good job on Wall Street because, uh, if you went to a business school, you think everybody's trying to help everybody else. Uh, uh, out and at least the Marxists know that it's all about exploitation and, uh, that really helps, helps you lead into what, what's happening, uh, uh, where. So, uh, you know, uh, we'd get together and we'd talk about it. And, uh, uh, so I had written about it, uh, two years before. Uh, I, uh, talked to the Catholic Church about it when they were having, uh, helping me, uh, uh criticize American foreign aid, uh, uh, and, uh, support, uh, what at that time, was a uh, uh, the, the uh, progressive uh, liberation theology, and uh, actually uh, around that time, superimperialism came out. Uh, the, the good pope, uh, John Paul I, was going to uh, fund uh, the Vatican was going to start an academy of geoeconomics. Uh, I thought up the term in, uh, but it would have been in Tulane, uh, uh, the, uh, Louisiana, and uh, I was to head it. Uh, and, uh, unfortunately he was, uh, he, he, he didn't live very long. He was, po- he was, drank poison milk, uh, a few days after he, uh, uh, made that decision. And, uh, uh, then we got the two popes from hell and, uh, so much for any thought of a papal encyclical on debt cancellation, uh, for, uh, for the time being. But, uh, uh, I, I, at the time, uh, I, uh, we were all sort of anticipating it, and because I'd, I'd anticipated it and thought it through, as soon as it happened, I was able to come quickly out uh, and write the whole book. I'd already published some of the chapters. One of the chapters in the first book that w- was published of mine, which was by the Catholics on the myth of aid, uh, one of the, the chapter on the world, on the, uh, IMF and the World Bank, uh, from the Colombian Journalism Review, where a Maoist, uh, student had, uh, uh convinced them to, uh, uh, run my article. And, uh, so I, I'd actually done a lot of, uh, the preparatory work for the book. And I didn't have an agent. I simply mailed in the manuscript to, uh, 
uh, some uh, a publishing company, and uh, the uh, it got read by an associate editor uh, who'd gone to school with a Stalinist and thought that the uh, uh, the, uh, the book would sell. Uh, and it, the first reviewer was by a twit who'd worked a pro economics professor who'd worked for uh, the World Bank and had been writing uh, nagging me at Chase for years. Can I help him uh, with uh, the price of copper? Uh, so that he could write about Chile for the World Bank. And I just didn't have time to uh, do the work uh, for him uh, so that he could put it under his name uh, for the research that I did and uh, never answered him. And so he wrote the, the first review in uh, uh, a big magazine. And I'm blocking it out where it was right now, but it was a big magazine and they had cartoons and everything. And uh, he said it was a, a hopeless travesty of uh, 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 what was happening. And that really helped sell the book. Uh, because being denounced by a, uh, a World Bank thug, you know, told everybody else, hey, you know, this is uh, the name that uh, must not be spoken. Let's read the book. Uh, and I got a call from Canada uh, right uh, uh, two weeks after the book was published saying, uh, you know, we read the last paragraph of your book uh, from a bank. Uh, uh, the banker is a client of uh, our brokerage firm, read uh, your book, and he made uh, twenty two million dollars. Uh, uh, on, uh, uh, on it. Uh, will, and, uh, will you come and, uh, uh, it's a long story. I, I ended up as a consultant for, uh, brokerage houses. And then Herman Kahn, uh, as I wrote in the book, uh, uh, invite, said, uh, said that, uh, uh, convinced me to join his institute and explain to the, uh, uh, Defense Department how imperialism worked. So it was a how to do it book. Uh, uh, for them, and uh, the, the left wing had hardly any response at all because they're not interested in debt or finance. They're interested in uh, uh, labor oppression and, uh, you know, who's being oppressed and police brutality, and uh, uh, there was hardly any response at all from the uh, uh, from the left, and somebody did call Bob Heilbronner and say, uh, what do you think of, you know, what do you think of uh, uh, the book by your uh, former economics professor there? He said, well, I like Michael Hudson's book, but I can't say anything in public again about it. <laughs> so that was it. You know, he, he just couldn't bring himself uh, to say anything positive about me. That's interesting what you say about the about the left not really having much to say about it because you know at that point in the early 1970s at least you know the the um within the the humanities the fields that i know you're absolutely right that any any attention to finance was considered to be really you know kind of playing for the other side and the interest was much more in social history labor history labor sociology uh you know uh attention to work and technology of course is is you remember this would be when Braverman's Harry Braverman's book yeah. was all the rage and so you're absolutely right that that your work was was outside of the mainstream in that sense which is i think what has given it such longevity because you were writing not to appease any particular trend or to try to to you know to game the tenure track game um but instead were researching trends that you had been studying for at that point i guess close to a decade um and so you were already aware yeah. of the soundness of your of your arguments 
Um, so I'm, I'm curious after the publication, sort of where, where you then took your arguments, um, because super imperialism, how many editions is it now in? Or well, now it's uh, three editions. Three. Uh, yeah, well, uh, uh, I think, uh, Pluto Press did a, uh, uh, un, uh, they were almost broke at the time they did it and they didn't have enough money for a proofreader or a good designer and it was just a disaster. And so I, uh, got the rights back and, uh, did a, I thought as long as I'm <coughs> going to correct the, <coughs> the spelling, I might as well uh, correct the language and add a little bit and, uh, add some sections onto it and, really round it out and make it the definitive edition. Uh, I, I like the idea of a third edition of the book being the best. Uh, Ricardo's Principles of Political Economy, the third edition is the one you want. Uh, very often it takes three editions to get it right. So I'd love to hear about the trilogy that that you're working on. And yeah. I know that we're going to have a, you know, we're going to try to have a, a, a reading group about it, but given the, 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 the scholarship that you did prior to David Graeber's debt, and then the attention that was able to be given your work as a result of debt, where do you see your work now? Like, what would you say are the big contributions that that you are still out there making? Well, the first is that the debts can't be paid. Uh, and so the, uh, I, I'm working with a number of people uh, advocating debt cancellation, and especially now because of the sanctions uh, against Russia uh, on the uh, uh, sort of World War uh, III uh, being pre prepared, the, it's uh, obvious that uh, the uh, rising energy and food prices uh, force uh, global South countries to make a choice. Either they pay the U.S. debts, uh, dollar debts, uh, and impose austerity, or uh, they uh, don't pay the debts and they put their own growth uh, first. That's the big political fight. And uh, I, I'm working uh, with uh, uh, French economists or Belgian economists and others, uh, Eric uh, Poissant, uh, for instance, and, and I are going to be publishing, uh, I think, a book on debt cancellation soon. Uh, and I'm working with the Chinese especially to uh, uh, put together uh, the, uh, the, how this can be done with, uh, support from, uh, the, the members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization and other, other groups to become independent. Uh, how does the rest of the world become independent from the dollar and with it from the dollarized debt? Uh, and the second aspect I wanted to do is it, uh, I had prepared a history of economic thought. And I was teaching that at the New School uh, using Marx's theories of surplus value uh, is the main textbook. And that's what got uh, that infuriated the Marxists. They said, uh, you're not a member of any Marxist group. Only we can teach Marx. Uh, you, uh, and they got Halbrunner to forbid me to uh, uh, talk about history of economic thought because only uh, a member of um, a, a, a uh, political cult uh, was in, uh, um, uh, had the credentials uh, to do that, and uh, without being a member of any cult, I lacked the credentials uh, right. that was needed in uh, in uh, the left to follow this. But I did. I have written a lot. Now I think what uh, now that they're not teaching the history of economic thought anymore in the 
uh, academic curriculum. I wanted to write uh, I want, uh, what, uh, basically my own history of the main concepts, focusing on the concept of economic rent is unearned income, uh, and extend the concept of economic rent to interest, financial charges, rent, to the rentier economy, and almost all the work that I, the uh, papers that I've been publishing in the last two years have been how uh, we're not in industrial capitalism, we're in a retrogression of uh, finance capitalism that in a way is rolling back all of the uh, historical task of industrial capitalism to free economies from the legacy of feudalism, to free it from land rent, monopoly rent, and uh, uh, privatized banking, uh, and to, to go back to uh, really a the same kind of rentier economy that you had under the landlords, except that now rent is for paying interest and uh, the role that landlords uh, pay, played in the 19th century has been taken over by bankers and the financial sector. So uh, I think uh, if I, I want to integrate my analysis of finance and debt with the concept of economic rent which is basically what uh, banks in the financial sector finance. They finance uh, uh, real estate uh, uh, and uh, capital gains or uh, actual asset price gains for for real estate, housing. Uh, They finance uh, the oil and gas, natural resource mining industries, and they finance uh, technology monopolies. Uh, And I I, I, I think I want to sort of revive classical economics. So people say, uh, you know, what am I? I was asked the other day uh, by a, a British official, you know, what am I? And I said, well, uh, I'm a classical economist. I can say I'm an economist as long as I say a classical economist. Because, again, that means, what is that? Nobody knows what it means. It can mean whatever I want it to mean. Uh, and basically, that's uh, Adam Smith and the whole 19th century emphasis on value and price theory, where price is the excess of uh, 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 market price of economic rent in excess of the cost value. And that uh, that is what uh, people like uh, Henry George had no concept of and which uh, why people I think Paul Krugman was a, a reader for uh, a book that I was that uh, uh, Yale University Press wanted me to publish. Oh, the first edition uh, of uh, Killing the Host. And he said, oh, obviously, uh, uh, this guy is a follower of Henry George. Well, I, I loathe Henry George because uh, he didn't have a price and value theory. Uh, his, he, he, he was against the big government without realizing that the only way you're ever going to be able to tax the rentiers, the only way you're ever able to make uh, money and credit a public utility instead of a private monopoly is to have a government strong enough to check the oligarchy. And, of course, that's what the collapse of antiquity is all about. That's really the problem of Western civilization. And so, uh, well, what uh, David was doing in his book and where we both were at uh, at, at uh, the time uh, he was writing it and afterwards was saying, well, you know, there's, uh, there, uh, there's if you look at anthropology, look at all the damage that that does, look at through the ages, how societies cope with that. Uh, I don't think uh, either of us, made the logical jump to say this is the path that Western civilization went on that became a unique, uh, totally new detour around the 8th century B.C. And uh, ever since, we're still living in the aftermath of uh, Rome's uh, oligarchy uh, and the creditor-oriented law that it uh, 
uh, it developed. So I really developed uh, my own ideas quite further when I began to write uh, the book on antiquity and uh, just uh, to a higher level of abstraction. And then when I began to look at the Crusades uh, and find how awful they were, uh, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd forgotten what evil uh, the Vatican uh, uh, had, had been uh, in the uh, in the early centuries, uh, uh, the second, third, fourth, fifth, well, I mean, right down to the, I guess I could say down to last week. Uh, <laughs> I, I just forgot the, the, uh, the utter evil of, uh, uh, the popes and trying to be emperors. Uh, and it was the crusades that brought in the inquisition. The crusades, people, uh, I just looked at the Wikipedia, uh, uh, discussion of the crusades and uh, people think the crusades were to free the Holy Land, Jerusalem, from the Muslims. That wasn't it. The Crusades were against Christians. The Crusades was to kill the French Cathars, uh, who said that, you know, the rich people are evil. Uh, no, that's our constituency. Uh, to fight uh, the German kings, who said we want to be independent of the popes, and we don't want the churches to be uh, send all their money to Rome to fund uh, uh, the wars uh, against people that don't want uh, Roman leadership. The Crusades were to destroy Constantinople and to destroy the the uh, Eastern Orthodox, uh, uh, the real Christianity, the Eastern Orthodox Christianity uh, uh, that had survived. Uh, the Crusades were to introduce. Uh, uh, what, what, I don't know what you'd call it, but it, it, it was not Christianity. Uh, I guess that's why the Pope has not uh, invited me to help him write a new encyclical uh, uh, on this topic. But uh, that really is, is what's, ne- what, what's needed. And uh, I, I realized that it was the Crusades that, that uh, uh, led to the Pope saying, well, we've got to finance the wars so that we can fight uh, uh, Germany, France, Spain, uh, Sicily, uh, that, that doesn't accept our dictatorship. Uh, and, uh, in order to fund these wars, we need, uh, bank support. So let's get rid of all of the church's anti-usury law. Let's say, uh, uh, credit is good, not bad. Uh, it's like the animal farm with Orwell. Uh, it's like the, the double thing. All of a sudden, a total, uh, inversion of, uh, everything that Christianity was about. Uh, and you get the key to this inversion, as I, I say at the end of, uh, the collapse of antiquity with the Lord's Prayer. Saying, forgive us our sins. In other words, you know, don't screw around, uh, uh, sexually, uh, instead of forgive us our debts. They've just, it's just a, a, a travesty of mistranslation, uh, that, that, uh, Western Christianity suffered for the last thousand years. All that comes from the Crusades. So, at any rate, that's, uh, that hadn't occurred to me until I actually began to study St. Augustine. And as, uh, Peter Brown, uh, the biography of Augustine and that, uh, the, the, basically the fifth century pointed out, uh, it was really Augustine that founded the Inquis- the spirit of the Inquisition, although it didn't really come through, uh, until the Dominicans, uh, did it to basically, uh, uh, you can't, they, what, what the uh, Dominicans realized and the genius of the popes was you can't have Christianity unless you're willing to kill everybody who can read the Bible. Uh, you, you have to uh, prevent it from being translated so people can read it, because if they read the Bible, uh, they're going to realize that what we are is uh, the opposite of everything that Jesus was, was fighting for. 
And yet, all of, uh, the, I was supported by all of the uh, various Christian groups. They were uh, s- uh, publishing, sending me across the country uh, to lecture. So uh, there, there was a kind of uh, thinking in the late 1960s and early and 70s that somehow there was some hope for Christianity. Uh, but again, that was before the, the Pope from hell, uh, the Polish Pope uh, came in and uh, the German Pope from hell that followed him and uh, before uh, the Catholic Church was captured by the uh, by the Spanish fascists. I hope I, I haven't I, offended anybody. <laughs> no, probably not here. No. <laughs> um, I, thank you for that. I, I want to bring us up to... Uh, uh, more up to date, um, you, you know, the last chapter in debt is about, I, I believe the title is something like, you know, where, uh, you know, post 1971 into a, a, you know, an environment that we don't, that we have yet to know what it's going to be like. One of the things that's so uh, wonderful about your work is that you, you've shown how historically the battle isn't really between democracy and anti-democracy. The battle is really between oligarchy and autocracy. And one of the points that that Graver makes in the last chapter is that now that we've gone back, now that we've gone off the gold standard and we're decoupling ourselves from, uh, from bullion and we're going to, you know, a more virtual uh, credit-oriented kind of economy, that in Graeber's mind, it allows for the opportunity of, of, of greater, it, it creates a possibility for less violence. It doesn't necessarily guarantee it, but if these historical patterns are accurate, it will at least open up a possibility. Yet one of the things that he says elsewhere in his writings, um, like there never was a West, he says that there are really two conditions to democracy. One, that you've got to have people who want to act democratically, that, you know, that there's basically an assumption that pluralism's better than, than one person rule. But then you also, he argues, you've got to have a strong government in order to bring about the kinds of changes that democratic change implies. I'm wondering if you could comment on that, if you feel equally um, optimistic about the possibilities that that are out there now that we've gone away from a gold standard, because your work seems to suggest that not necessarily. And so I'm wondering if you could comment on that in light of the post-1971 world and what Graeber argues in the last chapter. Well, that's sort of a trick question. Uh, uh, you, you, to, the, argue, the concept of democracy and autocracy today has gone way beyond uh, what it was even five years ago. Uh, and especially now that President Biden has said uh, uh, the world is divided be, into democracy, meaning uh, American autocracy, and uh, autocracy meaning China, which means uh, uh, rulers supporting uh, what's good for the people as a whole. So uh, the value of studying uh, classical antiquity is you realize that Aristotle was very clear that democracy evolves into oligarchy. Uh, and the, what the oligarchy wants to do is prevent uh, any kind of central power strong enough 
to uh, challenge its control of society. So uh, they called uh, in in Greece, uh, they, uh, anyone, any reformer wanting to have a strong enough uh, uh, ruler to uh, cancel the debts and redistribute the land was called a tyrant because that's what the tyrants did. And they were in the 7th and 6th century BC. Well, the tyrants were who introduced democracy to Greece. They were the people who got rid of the mafiosi type uh, leaders and canceled the debts and redistributed the land. So all of a sudden, tyrant became a bad word, sort of like communist, um, not a good word. And in Rome, uh, anyone wanting to uh, cancel the debts and redistribute the land, like Julius Caesar or uh, uh, the uh, Catiline, uh, were called uh, seeking kingship. Uh, and uh, again, uh, what did a king do? The Roman kings, according to the Roman historians, had canceled the debts and uh, uh, supported uh, uh, access to the land uh, by the people. And uh, uh, in the Bible, when uh, the, uh, the the Jewish uh, rabbinical class, the creditor class, uh, the Pharisees, uh, wanted uh, Rome to uh, crucify uh, Jesus, they said, well, he wants to be king, uh, king of the Jews. Well, they knew that for Rome, saying somebody wanted to be king is to do what Jesus said his mission in life was to do, to bring about the debt cancellation of the Jubilee year and uh, to uh, to uh, restore the laws of Leviticus against uh, uh, the uh, rabbinical school, wanting people to sign the prose pool of uh, Rabbi Hillel, uh, where you waived all of the rights under the Jubilee year. So uh, the the fact is that uh, you, uh, as long the idea of pluralism and everybody sort of at the same level, uh, the, uh, the di- internal economic dynamics are such that democracy leads to uh, oligarchy, and so democracy is essentially ends up uh, uh, leading to. What you have uh, in the United States today, it's led to finance capitalism uh, overpowering uh, the uh, progressive tendencies of industrial capitalism. So so that's why when uh, you have uh, uh, China, uh, uh, the Communist Party of China, trying to support policies to uh, raise uh, productivity, raise living standards, provide health care, education, Transportation is basic public utilities. Uh, that's called autocracy. Uh, and uh, the uh, American will say, well, under democracy, you have to have a free market, meaning you have to let the American oligarchs buy control of your uh, transportation. You have to make uh, uh, America uh, banks uh, create your money uh, at interest. You can't have public banking. You can't have a central bank creating money. You need that to be uh, a private monopoly. That's democracy. And that's uh, what the whole term is, is, means today. So I think you... Uh, it, it turns out that, uh, well, that's how I tried to end the collapse of antiquity with, by making uh, that point, and it certainly uh, is the, uh, what we're facing uh, today. And, and uh, what I'm doing in analyzing today's economy uh, is saying you're having a fight by the uh, 1% to uh, take control over all of the economic surplus that exists. And in order to do that, it has to capture the government or prevent any government from being strong enough to uh, to check the uh, 1% from succeeding in reducing the rest of the economy to uh, 
debt peonage. Uh, I see that Simona has her hand up. Simona? Yes. Thank you, uh, Steve. And thank you, Michael. Uh, it's really an honor to be able to speak with you. Um, I have a, a perplexity about uh, 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 an important point that David makes in depth uh, about virtual money. Um, he says uh, virtual money opens uh, the play possibilities for uh, uh, for less violence uh but the, wait what opens it what's the word that you uh, use the uh, gives us a chance to uh to enable a, a, a system with less violence or without violence uh he says credit money uh historically led to uh systems based on trust uh, nevertheless, I'm under the impression that this uh, virtual money we have uh, today uh, is for the first time in uh, history of virtual money that can be based on uh, violence uh, rather than trust. Uh, credit money is based on trust uh, uh, between each other and uh, what we have today, uh, I hope I'm able to explain myself, is something uh, that ranges uh, in long distance, uh, in uh, is impersonal. While uh, I think uh, the credit money uh, David was talking about uh, was uh, uh, personal, uh, was based on personal relationships and therefore not violent. Uh, so. This is something you may be able to clarify me uh, because. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's uh, yeah. surprising as it is, uh, the people who are willing to kill uh, uh, other people are the people who do not earn their money and do not produce things. The actual people who are being exploited. Uh, the workers are not willing to kill their exploiters, but the exploiters are willing to kill uh, the, any leaders of the workers who threaten uh, their free lunch, who threaten their uh, rentier gains, who threaten uh, their appropriation of uh, uh, public wealth and public uh, utilities to privatize them. So it's the privatizers that are violent. It's the exploiters that are violent, not the victims. Uh, of, uh, and uh, that that's... Uh, uh, I guess that's part of nature. Uh, uh, so how do you deal with the fact that uh, uh, you have the CIA going about assassinating uh, any national leader who wants uh, in, to be independent from uh, uh, the Americans, uh, from Lumumba to, you know, right down uh, the lines of all the uh, uh, the CIA assassinations of social democratic leaders uh, in uh, Europe and Latin America, uh, uh, the support of Pinochet, uh, the the exploiters uh, are willing to uh, uh, use violence and assassination, and this goes right back to Rome. Uh, the whole history of the Roman of Rome is uh, uh, century after century of assassinating uh, any political leader who advocated debt cancellation and land redistribution. 
the grachi, I mean, that, uh, uh, that, that's part of what you see. And the, uh, the, uh, the Roman people, uh, who were being, losing their land, uh, were never really, uh, able to succeed in fighting back. So, uh, ro- uh the, the, uh, financial leaders, the property, the, the wealthiest, uh, population who makes their wealth hereditary, uh, and, uh, uh, inherit it instead of creating it are, uh, the, uh, the ones who create violence to, uh, defend, uh, what is basically unfair. Uh, if you make, uh, wealth or, uh, as- assets unfairly, you kill to, you kill to, uh, keep it. But if, uh, it's taken from you unfairly, uh, you tend not to, uh, be willing to kill because you believe in fairness. That's the, uh, it's a, it's a whole different ethic between the 1% and the 99%. And, uh, that, that's what makes democracy lose out to oligarchy, uh, every time throughout history. Nika? Yes, thank you so much, Michael, for coming. Yeah, I just really like uh, so grateful to you, and I'm very happy that uh, this is the last session of uh, our season for Museum of Care. Uh, so I have a question to you. Uh, like you were saying that you're more futurist rather than economist. So can you tell us how the world may look like if uh, suddenly uh, uh, the debt cancellation everywhere would happens? What would happen? So if uh, the government will decide it, convinced by you and David and everybody else who's working on that, that's okay. We're going to do that. Well, imagine how much more money uh, the average family would have if it didn't have to pay its uh, uh, credit card debt, its uh, automobile debt, its mortgage debt, uh, and uh, uh, the other debts. Uh, it, it would be able to spend money on the products that... Uh, Wage, uh, wage earners uh, produce. Imagine what governments uh, could do if they were not uh, uh, sub- subject to IMF pressure saying, uh, in order for you to pay your dollar bondholders, uh, you have to impose austerity. The first thing you have to do is uh, uh, get rid of the labor unions. And if you can't do it peacefully, uh, let us come in and we'll, we'll just kill the labor leaders for you. Uh, you, you have to, uh, sell off your, uh, public domain, sell off your oil rights, uh, sell off your forests. We want to burn them down and grow, uh, uh, grow, uh, cattle, uh, on them. Uh, you have to essentially let, uh, the financial sector become your economic planners, not the government. Uh, and, uh, as long as countries believe they have to pay the debt, then they're going to say, well, I guess we owe the debt, so we're going to have to commit economic suicide. We cannot afford to grow. Uh, Our population must shrink. We cannot afford uh, public health care. We cannot afford education because uh, we owe them the money. Well, to me, that's crazy. How do you get people to to say, do we really need all this? Is, Is this built into nature? Uh, is it really true that, as Margaret Thatcher says, there is no alternative? Well, of course there's an alternative. And uh, one of the reason that I spent so many years on the uh, Sumer and Babylonia and uh, the Bronze Age was to show that there was an alternative, that that is alternative is how civilization actually took off very successfully. And that alternative lasted really until uh, Western civilization uh, uh, brought to power 
a, a whole uh, group of Westerners with uh, Putin now called the Golden Billion that's willing to kill everybody else uh, in order to uh, prevent the kind of success that the whole rest of the world had before about the 8th century B.C. Oh, I lost everybody. Uh, <laughs> uh, Christian, would you like to ask a question? Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, again, thank you. It's, it's quite an honor to, to be able to talk to you here in this forum. And um, I mean, if, if you look at uh, the columns of antiquity, like these, these events that played out over a large uh, frame of time, it took centuries. You described centuries of civil war, of creditor debtor standoffs. And um, still, the, Ro the, uh, the Roman oligarchy prevailed, you know, in, sp in spite of, in a way, hollowing out. I mean, this is also part of your of your theme, you know, when you say it's killing the host. The system is killing the host. I mean, you wrote an entire book on this. And uh, but still, you know, despite this, 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 this machine managed to go on for centuries, despite all the resistance, and only it seems when it had hollowed itself out to a point. Um, when it couldn't sustain itself anymore, like the barbarians came in and knocked over the empty husk. It, I mean, I think many of us here in this group and other people are looking for uh, an alternative. And, and, my, and in a way, I'm wondering if, um, on the one hand, you have to be just lucky enough to be alive when the cycle turns, or <laughs> that's it, yep. you have to just wait. Or is there something more, you know, it's just like, because uh, all these centuries of resistance have to mount up to something. I, at least I would hope to, you know. Well, timing is all important. And uh, around 1980, uh, it, uh, at the end of the 70s, I realized that uh, uh, this is just at the point where you had uh, Drexel Burnham uh, uh, come in. Many of my friends uh, worked there. You had uh, uh, Wall Street uh, starting the whole sort of uh, debt leverage takeover movement, I realized that there wasn't going to be a debt cancellation in the foreseeable future, that you're going to have just the opposite. You're going to have economies loaded down with debt. Well, that's when I decided, okay, what, uh, uh, what am I going to do for the next 10 or 20 years? That's when I decided to do my historical work because it's obvious that this was not, that anything that I would come out with doing what, uh, David was trying to do, which is, uh, spur a, a debt cancellation, uh, wasn't going to go very far in the, uh, uh, in the 1980s. So that's when I joined, uh, Harvard and, uh, put together my Harvard group, uh, in the, uh, 80s, 90s and, uh, uh early 2000s. Uh, and it's only now that uh, you're finally uh, reaching the point where the economies reach the debt limits, uh, just like you have the environment reaching its global warming limits and its pollution limits. Uh, you're having the COVID uh, uh, crisis reaching, you know, how many people can uh, uh, can be paralyzed with long COVID. Uh, you're having uh, debt pollution. Uh, essentially, uh, reaching the limits and economy, uh, the U.S. and European economies cannot grow. Uh, and I think the U.S. planners recognize this and said, okay, at least if we can't grow, at least we can make sure we can exploit our colonies in Europe. Uh, and so Europe is going to be, uh, the victim of, uh, uh, American, uh, economic exploitation for the next, uh, 10 years. And I think you're going to have a, uh, France and Germany, and uh, Italy are going to end up looking like Latvia and Lithuania and uh, Estonia 
uh, and their population is going to be going uh, way down. Uh, the uh, the uh, Amer- you're going to see Nobel Prize ge- prizes given for saying that every economy should look at our ideal, Ukraine. That's our ideal. Uh, privatize everything, sell it off, get rid of the population, make them move uh, somewhere else. Uh, we don't need people to uh, exploit uh, the agriculture and the uh, uh, the raw materials. Uh, that's uh, the road for the future for Europe. And it's it's as if the uh, plans at the end of World War II to make Germany into a sort of happy farmland uh, agricultural economy, roll back the industry. Uh, nobody was able to do that in 1945, uh, but President Biden is able to do it today. He's able to say uh, America's been able to deindustrialize Germany and essentially roll it back and make it into a uh, pastoral farming uh, uh, sort of theme park. Uh, and uh, so here you have... Uh, an ability of the United States to keep uh, burning up uh, the, uh, the European economy, to keep itself going. Uh, and the question is, how are you going to get uh, the rest of the world, the uh, uh, the global majority, the uh, the uh, apart from the golden billion, uh, the other sort of 85 percent of the population, uh, to be able to follow uh, a different alternative and uh, essentially the alternative that, uh, finance ca- that uh, industrial capitalism promised to have in the 19th century, according to the classical economists, and to resist uh, the financialization and uh, the rentier economy that uh, has uh, made a hereditary oligarchy in the West. Well, uh, you're beginning to see that, uh, but no country, uh, certainly you're not having uh, China make any attempt at all to proselytize uh, its economic uh, policy, its economic model. There's there's nothing like uh, the world communist movement in the uh, early uh, 20th century. There's no uh, uh, systematic alternative being put forth, certainly not by the labor parties or the social democratic parties uh, of Europe or uh, North America. So really, uh, I guess all of us together have to promote, we have to create a critical mass uh, of an understanding of why the economy isn't working, why it's polarizing between the 1% and the 99%, and uh, what uh, what we, uh, how to uh, actually create this, uh, this alternative. Uh, I don't see it being able to be created uh, in the United States. It looks like uh, it'll be created much more easily in Eurasia uh, and uh, the global south uh, simply because uh, the existing uh, society is so debt-ridden that it simply cannot go any further along the lines that it's presently structured. I, <clears throat> excuse me. I see that it's it's almost four o'clock. Um, are are you willing, uh, sure. Professor Hudson, to entertain one more question? Sure. Okay. Uh, I didn't know there was a time limit on it. Well, I mean, you know, I, I want to be I want to be respectful of your time. Right. Uh, uh, Michael, uh, I see that you have a question. Would you like to ask? Yeah. So I've got an easy name to remember, Michael. Uh, my name is Michael also. Um, I, I was just kind of going back to Simona's question at the beginning in terms of we've been going through this book debt. And one of David Graeber's theses is, is that when you have this interpersonal credit, um, uh, people like even if you're counting the money that you need to give to people, um, because people have to do that face to face in a small scenario, then 
it's not really a bad situation. You don't have huge accumulation of debt in this type of microeconomics of a community. And and then he so it goes with when you had these gold coins, he's arguing that gold coins in the axial age suddenly create a situation where um, you don't really need an interpersonal exchange. You could just take your money and go. And so um, it, it goes on arguing that in in the sort of beginning of capitalism is when is this alliance between bankers um, and um, the the Spaniards who went and had to and were, the the money that they gave to the Venetian uh, Genoan bankers they had to pay it back and so they were basically willing to do anything because they were in debt and this and he's then arguing that this there's this alliance between um, the banking system and war. And, um, and then at the final chapter, which is sort of what we sort of have been discussing, but then we're very excited that you're here to talk about stuff. Um, we have, it's called the beginning of something yet to be determined. And he decides to say, Oh, look, here's the year that they came off the gold standard. So, um, and, and, and we've been sort of debating about whether or not this conflation of this axial age idea that gold coinage um, was a crucial part of building a cycle of and being able to pay for war um, and depersonalizing the economy and allowing debts to be done in a particular way. Um, and that um, and, and then the the collapse of gold coinage came in the Middle Ages. And I think people have all thought, oh, well, because there wasn't this ability to create a, an alliance between the bankers and the people and financing war, that somehow the Middle Ages were better. And so that, like that, so like, obviously the Middle Ages were very hierarchical and there were some wars. So I want maybe, so it's hard. So these are the sort of the big, broad brushstroke pictures that, um, David is sort of painting in his book and we were trying to kind of put a bunch of them together. Maybe you could, um, uh, talk a little bit about what potent, um, the coming off the gold standard in 1971 and how, if, if, uh, if the collapse of the gold use of gold coins at the end of the axial age ultimately heralded a slightly different type of economy, what what does the collapse of the gold uh, standard indicate now, or do you not think so, or how long would it take? Maybe you could comment on. It, uh, the collapse of the gold standard means nothing for this. Uh, I think what David was talking about in the example you said, uh, as I said, he's sort of a people person. He was talking about uh, relationships among people. His point of uh, reference was the anthropology. Uh, the chapters uh, that he wrote in uh, Madagascar and uh, the other places uh, about how the original debts were interpersonal debts, not uh, corporate debts or government debt. Uh, his solution of interpersonal debts doesn't apply to government debt or corporate debt or uh, lar- large scale, of, you know, billion dollar, million dollar uh, type loans. So uh, he's not talking about the whole economy. He, he, he essentially is using the interpersonal debt as a kind of metaphor. Wouldn't it be nice if all of society were uh, more or less uh, uh, cooperative like that? But that, uh, uh, I, 
I think your description of the Middle Ages uh, is not accurate at all. I don't like the term axial age. I don't even know what it is. Uh, uh, it's, it's, it, uh, I don't think serious people uh, like that uh, idea anymore. You had uh, it was the it was the uh, Vatican that uh, organized uh, uh, lenders in uh, they're called Cahorzines uh, or Lombards. Uh, they were uh, northern Italy and uh, uh transalpine creditors that the uh, uh the vatican would uh, uh the popes would organize in the uh, 13th century to uh make loans to uh the english kings uh uh and other local kings to uh pay the papacy so that it could finance the wars uh to fight against uh the christian kingdoms so you can think of the uh, uh, the Middle Ages as the war of the papacy against Christianity. Uh, that's basically what it was. And uh, they, it was the popes that, uh, how do you fight a war? You need credit uh, in order to, uh, as wars became more and more expensive. And uh, so uh, this credit, it was indeed still uh, uh, in uh, gold and silver, in commodity money uh, The that uh, uh, arranged financing. The, the the debts the the big debtors in the twelfth and thirteenth century were not uh, the poor as they were in uh, uh, Greece and Rome. The debtors were the kings and the churches. The debtors were at the top of the economic pyramid, not uh, the bottom. And uh, they were sanctified uh, in paying interest because they were fighting for something that the popes wanted uh, to kill other Christians who didn't agree with your, with, uh, uh, the Roman, uh, travesty of, uh, uh, Christianity. Uh, and, uh, so as long as you were killing the Christians, uh, uh, for Rome, uh, that was considered sanctimonious. And, uh, that led uh, the only way that, uh, you could have a strong king, uh, uh such as Philip the fourth of France, uh, come in was to, well, he could, uh, lower the silver content of the, uh, uh, the livre tournois uh and uh adulterate the carnage well that didn't uh, uh work very much uh but at least uh after the crusades were over the papacy didn't have an organizing principle to uh, uh an evangelistic principle to say let's kill uh the uh, the enemy the foreigners uh it's as if joseph goebbels went back and became uh the main advisor to the papacy and said all you need to do to get the people on your side is to say you're under attack so, uh, and, uh, you had, uh, uh, 1095, uh, and six, uh, the Pope saying, well, we're under attack by the Muslims. Uh, and the Muslims weren't attacking anybody. There was other, the rest of the world in the 11th and 12th century, uh, religions in Spain, in Sicily, uh, in the Near East, uh, there were Christians and Jews and, uh, 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 Eastern Orthodox Christians and Roman Christians, uh, there was a, t- a tolerant multi-ethnic society. Uh, and, uh, the Romans said, you can't be multi-ethnic. You must kill everybody who, uh, uh, is, is different from the, uh, the world that we want to control, uh, for Jesus. Uh, and, uh, you have this spilled out in the papal dictates of, uh, 1074 and then the, uh, uh, the Great Schism. So it was really, uh, it was, uh, from the very beginning, uh, the papacy organized, uh, uh, formal debts, uh, and sponsored interest-bearing debts in order to, to pay for wars. Uh, the big change came from really with the, uh, the Bank of England, uh, in, uh, 
1694, where you had beginning to have paper money and government debt became the basis of the monetary system. And ever since the 17th century, uh, you've had uh, debt becoming the key uh, to money, not really gold or silver. Gold or silver was used for uh, settling international balances among governments, among central banks, as there were. But they're not used uh, domestically. Uh, money wasn't used uh, that much domestically, except at harvest time uh, in the medieval times. Money was only used basically to pay debts. Uh, and gold and silver were used to pay international uh, debt. So uh, when uh, the world, went, when America went, uh, pulled the world off the gold exchange standard in 1971, what did it uh, replace it with? With uh, paper money or electronic money that was uh, the uh, monetized U.S. military spending abroad. That's the whole thesis. Uh, that's what my charts in uh, uh, Silver Imperialism show. So uh, you didn't make uh, essentially a great peaceful progress by getting rid of gold. You made uh, American military spending the source of uh, dollars uh, that became the world's central bank reserves. Uh, so uh, what David said uh, was how early anthropology societies dealt only with interpersonal debts and uh, the one you didn't want to bankrupt the neighbor you you wanted to make debts uh not interfere with uh ongoing just social balance he said that that's the kind of world we need today uh we need not to let debts interfere with social balance and you can have that in interpersonal debts uh but he never said you could have that with a uh, corporate debt with uh, industrial debt, uh, with uh, government debt, which is mainly to finance war. Uh, uh, his idea was you want to get rid of that kind of debt. Uh, you, or if you do have that kind of debt, you want uh, the government to create money as a public utility. And uh, you, it's a credit extended by the government without real debt. And if the debt can't be paid by a corporation, uh, China, when there's a, a company that uh, can't pay its debt, it doesn't foreclose and break it up and fire everybody and sell off the parts. It, it writes down the debts so that it's not going to uh, uh, interrupt society. I think that's the kind of continu continuity uh, that David was talking about. And uh, he said, uh, wouldn't it be nice if you could have this interpersonal uh, debt uh, among individuals, but that uh, solving the individual debt problem does not solve the uh, uh, the government debt problem or the fact that money the bank problem that money creation is private in the hands of uh, uh, a financial class because the financial class today is just as lethal and uh, destructive uh, of the population as uh, overt uh, military conquest would be. Uh, finance has been uh, imperialized. Uh, or you could say, uh, imperialism has been financialized. Uh, that, that, that really is the key. So you have to look at, uh, the whole world economy as uh, a broad system. And, uh, David wasn't uh, trying to deal with that. He was trying to at least saying, uh, outline here, uh, it doesn't have to be this way. Here's the kind of ideal, but so far you only have this, uh, in local interpersonal relationships. Do you agree, Nika? Not really, <laughs> not really, and I really want to ask, but questions, but maybe, yeah, uh, I will, uh, I will, I think we should maybe continue in the next season with Christian and everybody else, because uh, yes, of course, David, I would, I totally disagree. Disagree. 
Yeah, I think. Okay. Yeah. Well, I didn't want to be an idealist. Uh, <laughs> what can I say? Yeah, but but uh, it doesn't matter that I disagree. It's really interesting what you're saying, and it's a real uh, real framework for the discussion and um, thinking about. Um, Uh, governments that owe debts to each other are not going to be nice to each, as nice to each other as uh, the people that uh, David was talking about in Madagascar. <laughs> if, if, uh, if someone else, I, unfortunately, I have to run to another appointment. I'm in the United States and I'm still technically on, on, in my work day. Um, uh-huh. If someone's willing to take over the facilitation, Michael or Christian, You know, I'm I'm comfortable if if others are with the conversation going on. Um, I do have to run to another meeting, so I'm happy passing things over. No, but I think I think we should uh, wrap, up wrap up things up. because yeah, because I think we should uh, we we we're planning now the whole series of uh, reading group related to Michael Hudson because his his book is essential for for the whole core of the ideas that we're trying to. Uh, to discuss uh, and research. So I don't think we should just drag this particular conversation. So maybe I will ask Stephen to, uh, to wrap it up. To wrap it up. Okay. So, so uh, thank you everyone for coming. This has been a wonderful experience for me. I hope it's been um, productive and helpful, perhaps therapeutic on your end. It's certainly, um, been a, a delight for me to to be able to go over the book with others to chew on it but then especially to just have all of the input from everyone and all of your questions and then to be able to have Michael Hudson here to join us on our on our um, on our final reading group for this book it's been just a real treat so again Professor Hudson thank you so much for joining us um, everyone else be on the the lookout for for future uh reading groups we're of course not going anywhere and um and we've still you know visit the museum of care webpage because we have lots of events coming in the future so we will take the summer off from reading groups but lots of things still going on so thank you everyone and i look forward to seeing you down the road thanks, thanks for having me thank you Thank mm-hmm. you.